awesome. We continue to celebrate uh, the Lord together. Hopefully you've enjoyed celebrating your salvation, the work that he's done for you on the cross, your song, and we see what God's been doing in some other folks' lives as they got baptized. Hopefully you were able to be here that day. If not, uh, you're able to join with us in celebrating that just now. If you see any of those folks, just congratulate them again and uh, tell them how proud of them you are for taking that step of faith. And I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump right into the message today of Philippians chapter 3. If you want to find it in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12, pick up where we left off last week. Today's message is really a continuation of last week's message. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll continue to worship the Lord through his word. Let me pray. Father, thank you um, that we get to talk to you and that you talk to us. And I pray you'd speak through my words here in a moment as we share this time together as a church family. I pray for those who aren't here today because of sin. I pray that you'd break their hearts and draw them here. And uh, I pray for those who aren't able to be here just because of uh, life and things that are taking place. Maybe they're somewhere else today. And uh, I just pray that you'd have your hand on them. You'd meet with them. I pray that you'd meet with us as we gather. That you'd encourage us with one another's testimony. You'd encourage us uh, with one another's singing. You'd encourage us as we open the word. And uh, you'd convict us where necessary. And you'd push us forward in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Last week we left off talking about Paul saying what his one thing is. If you weren't here last week, I asked a question. And the question was, if there was one thing for which you'd lose everything else, what would it be? And so maybe you remember what your answer was. And if you weren't here last week, then just ask yourself that question right now. What is the one thing for which you'd lose everything else? What is the one thing that you'd be willing to lose everything else in your life for? What's supreme? What's ultimate? That's really what we're asking when we say that. And we talked about how last week there can be multiple things for different people. For some people, it's pleasure. Maybe it's a pleasurable experience. And so it can be things that seem silly when you start putting them in perspective, like a meal. If I just had this meal, then that would be, that's the experience that I want. If I had this vacation, if I had this sexual experience, if I had these, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. And if pleasure is your thing, then you see people that will do that, that will go after that one pleasure, that they'd be willing to lose everything else for that pleasurable experience. And you see drug addicts and addicts, we heard Sean even share these addiction issues, for that fix, lose everything else. Whether it's a shot, a drink, a computer screen, you pick the addiction, you fill in the blank, you'd be willing to lose everything else for that one thing. For some people, accomplishments their deal so if i just got to this accomplishment if i just got this level and you will lose things in the process of going after it and so what would you lose everything for for the codependent it's a pat on the back maybe sometimes even focused on a specific person if i could just get that person's approval if i could just, and you'd lose so many other things in the process most americans are on a pursuit ever elusive pursuit of happiness and we'd lose lots of stuff to try and gain that happiness. And so what is it for you? What is your one thing for which you'd lose everything else? And we saw last week in Philippians chapter 3, a guy named Paul who started this church in Philippi talks about what his one thing is. And his one thing is to know Christ. And he had counted all of his background, all the things from his past. He talked about, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin and of Israel, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As for legalistic righteousness, I was a Pharisee, a zeal. He was persecuting the church. He had all those things going for him. He said, I consider it all a loss. In fact, it's dung in comparison to knowing Christ. I consider everything a loss in comparison to knowing Christ. What is more, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Who doesn't want to know the power of his resurrection, the victory over sin? But he said, even to the point of, I'd be willing to share and suffering to help me know him more. I'd lose everything. And so what is it for you? And maybe like Paul, you'd say, that's your one thing, is to know Jesus. And it's interesting what Paul talks about next. He says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, 
After saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, I want to become like him in his death. And then he says in verse 12, not that I've obtained all this. So in case you thought Paul had arrived, in case you thought that because he said that, that I could never get to that level, not even that desire level where Paul's at. Paul's saying, whoa, 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 I'm not there. He says, not that I've obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus. And so what Paul does here is he uses a, a running analogy. He's talking about a spiritual journey. It's a common analogy for Paul. So I don't know if he was a runner, if he just liked the Olympic Games or, or what it is, but he's continually using this analogy to cast off all the sin, all the things that so easily entangle. Keep your eyes fixed on your author and perfect of your faith, right? Who marked out the race before us, run the race with endurance, he says. I beat my body, I make it my slave. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's continually talking about this. He talks about multiple athletic analogies in 1 Timothy. And here he's talking about straining towards this goal, running towards this finish line. Remember the goal, the goal is, verses 8 through 11, that we read last week, that I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, even sharing in his sufferings, that I might become like him in his death. I want to become like Jesus, I want to know Jesus, somehow that I attain to the resurrection from the dead, which he would, when either Jesus came back or he died, he didn't know at that point what would happen first. But until that point, he wouldn't have arrived. He was on this race. Some of you I shared with you that uh, about a month ago, March 15th, I ran my second marathon. What I didn't tell you is I didn't want to run. Most people don't accidentally run a marathon. What happened for me was that my wife and I ran one marathon. We had a great experience. I honestly think everyone should do it. It's got so many life analogies. I've learned a lot of different things, how important encouragement is. Everybody's encouraging each other out there. It's a great, great experience. So I ran the second race only because my wife signed up because she wanted to qualify for the Boston Marathon. So I wanted to encourage her. So I said, I'll go through the training with you. I'll run the race with you. What ended up happening is that she got hurt. The week of the race, it became clear she wasn't going to be able to run it. And so now I'm running a race that I don't even want to run. And it's not like you just show up. It's 26 miles. So it's not like you say, oh, whatever, I'll go do it. And so I had to think to myself, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to be motivated to run this race? And so I picked a time that I wanted to run. It was a goal time for me. Before, I was just going to run with her, try and help her do what she was going to do. And then I picked a, a passage of scripture that was significant to me. And our first marathon, the passage of scripture I had picked was this one, forgetting what's behind, pressing on towards what is ahead. I strive to, to win this race, to go towards this goal. And this time I picked a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It was Paul in verses 24 through 27. You end up seeing him talk about a boxer and a runner. And he says, I beat my body and I make it my slave. So in the end, I won't be disqualified for the prize. And so I head out Go to the race this, this morning. We show up. Shanna's there with me. She's cheering me on. She's kind of emotional that she doesn't get to run the race. I'm starting in the starting corral, and I'm um, looking at all these people that are super ready to go, and they're going to be awesome, and I'm just thinking, I, I don't want to be here. <laughs> and uh, then the gun goes off, and I take off running, and the first half of the race kind of happened, and I was actually doing really well. I was running a lot faster than the time that I had, had been shooting for. In fact, I got to about mile 11, and I was thinking to myself, I could do this forever. <laughs> I was so deceived at that moment. And... Uh, <laughs> And then I actually had thought to myself, I'm gonna, I was kind of had gotten together with this group of folks that were running for a time that was even faster than what I was going for, and, and I was thinking, I could, they're going so slow, I could ditch these people, I should take off. And then I kind of channeled my inner Shanna, because Shanna always tells me, simmer down, at the beginning of the race, it's a long race. I said, I'll just wait. Fast forward from mile 11 to mile 18. At mile 18, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> I was pretty confident I was going to die, and I just kept telling myself, if you could just make it to mile 20, 
then you'll be okay. Then you, you'll, 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 you'll get there. If you just make it to mile 20. I got to mile 20. I remember taking an orange from one of the refreshment stands at mile 20 and having the thought in my head, if you litter, they said they'll disqualify you and throwing the peel down in the middle of the thing. Because I don't know, I wouldn't quit. Just, I don't know if that was pride or what it was. But I, did, I couldn't quit, but I wouldn't have been upset if someone said, you're no longer allowed to run. Like I was ready to stop running. Got to mile 22. At mile 22 was the slowest mile I ran of the whole time. And in fact, I walked some of it. And towards the end of mile 22, a guy came running up behind me. And he was the pacer. And some of the big races, they have guys that will help you keep track. If I run with that guy, that's when I'll finish. He was the pacer for the time that I wanted to get. And he was about to pass me. And he said, come on, it's just three, three short miles left. And his words of encouragement meant so much to me. I don't know who he was, or, but if he watches this message, thank you. I started running with the guy. Run to this drink station. I get a couple drinks. And uh, he had gotten a little bit ahead of me. And it was like God rejuvenated me at that moment. And I took off. I felt like the very beginning of the race. I ran past this guy. I'm ditching this guy. I'm passing people like crazy. I'm feeling good. I get to mile 25. And I'm running just as hard as I was on miles 23 and 24. But I'm not going as fast. I can tell by looking at my watch. And then the pacer guy passes me at about 25 and a half. And I think if I could just keep him in eye shot, then I'll be okay. But he just kept getting a little bit further away from me. And I thought, I'm going to just miss my goal. I remember as we were headed towards the end... I prayed the Isaiah passage in Isaiah where it talks about the youth will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and shall not faint, which is interesting. And I start running. I go after this guy. And as I'm starting running, I experienced something I'd never experienced before. I just kept thinking, if I could just see the finish line, then I'd, I'd know where I have to get to. And I, I could go that far, however far that is. I could get to the finish line. But as I'm running, I'm running as hard as I can. And I start getting dizzy and I can't see stuff. And so my wife comes off the side. I kind of could see her. She's in a bright pink shirt taking my picture and yelling for me. But I, I couldn't see the finish line. I just thought if I could just see the finish line, I could get there. And I started to see this black structure. And I ran through the black structure, took about two more steps, and then I fell to the ground. A volunteer comes running over. That was the finish line. I says, are you okay? I said, can I just lay down? She said, no, you cannot. Lay down. And I thought, I just ran 26 miles. I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> I laid down. And the next thing I knew, there were about 10 EMTs standing around me. And I had passed out. I heard them say, he's been out for about three minutes. And I was, I know, I just closed my eyes. Like, what are you talking about? And then they threw me on an ATV. They drove me over to a med tent. When I got to the med tent, my hands were tingling, my lips were tingling, my feet didn't feel right. And uh, they were talking to me and trying to give me fluids and, and doing all this stuff. And I got real delirious. <laughs> and my wife can testify to all the things that I said. But I remember when she came to the tent, she looked really concerned. And I said, Shannon, did I get my time? She said, yeah, you got your time. I said, I beat my body and make it my slave. Yep. And then I started doing like comedy bits. I'm talking to the EMTs about their family. I'm like, Shay, come over. You got to meet Quincy. Come over. You got to meet this person. And I'm just talking. She's just looking at me like, you, I thought you were going to die. Now you're just being an idiot. I want to die. Like just kind of going through this whole thing and saying all this stuff. And then what sobered me up was when the EMT looked at me and said, we're going to send you to the hospital. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to the hospital. I'm going to just relax here. And when I feel a little bit better, I'm going to get some pizza and grab all the swag. And I'm going to be totally, I'm good. I'm just good. And she said, did you go to, did you see the Oaks last year? The Oaks last year, uh, a couple people died. So I said to her, are you saying I'm going to die? She said, I'm not saying you're going to die, but just we don't want anything to happen. So you just got to relax. They sent me to the emergency room over here in Briar Creek. I remember Pastor Jason, when he came in, I said, well, my verse was 1 Corinthians 9. I beat my body. I'm making my slave. He goes, well, what would your body say? <laughs> my body won in that situation. They pumped some water into my body. And uh, then I went home. And when I got home, I remember my nine-year-old daughter uh, coming up to me. And she said, are you okay? So they didn't know I was in, we were in the hospital at that point until just right when we got there. So they got all dramatic about it. And then she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, no one can take that from you. You got your goal. You got what you're shooting for. You finished the race. You got your time. It didn't go exactly the way that I wanted it to go. But 
And then I asked myself after, when I go after Christ the way that I go after that finish line, with everything, striving towards that, that's what Paul's talking about in this passage. I give it all. I give it everything I have for the goal. But the goal is not a time that actually doesn't really matter in light of all of eternity. It's not some accomplishment here on earth. It's to know Christ. It's verses 8 through 11. It's that I would not know Christ. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Surpassing all things on this earth. Greatness of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Even to the point where I would suffer if it helped me get to know him better. That's how bad I want to know him. And then I'd become like him in his death. Willing to give up everything for other people. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the goal. And so that's the race after Christ. He's the goal. He's the prize. Not heaven. Not the blessings, not the position, not any of the things that come with that, not the forgiveness. It's him, him himself. He's the goal. He's the prize. Is that your one thing? What's your one thing? Did you go after it with everything like that? One thing's clear from this passage is that none of us have obtained it. Paul says here, if you go back to verse 12, not that I've obtained this already. Now remember, Paul's been a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ for 30 years when he writes these words. You read the passage right before this, and you think, man, I'd love to be where Paul's at, that I just want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And Paul says, wait, 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 in case you think that, that I've got this all figured out, I haven't obtained this either. And the reality is none of us have arrived. As long as you're still alive, you have not arrived. You're still breathing earth in this place. You're still breathing the oxygen. You're still walking on the dirt. You have not arrived. And that can sound discouraging. It shouldn't be discouraging. Because that's the very thing that drives us towards the goal. You haven't finished. You haven't crossed the finish line. You have not arrived. So therefore, you continue to strive towards the goal, towards the prize. And what's the prize? It's not just a finish line. It's not death. It's not the resurrection. It's that you know Christ. So you go through this process. And then it will happen when Jesus either comes back to get us or we die. But in the meantime, none of us have arrived. And so we go after it. And it's the very fact that we don't have it is what causes us to drive towards it. Like an athletic team going after a championship. Like two lovers that are separated by distance. Like last week, I shared with you a little bit about how, um, for a moment, just a brief moment, we had lost one of our children and found them a few moments later, uh, found our, our daughter. But for those few moments, I knew what it was like to want to, I'd, do, I'd give my own life. I'd, go, I'd do whatever to try and get her back. Can you imagine if you lost one of your children? Some of you have. You can imagine that. Some of you, it's been longer than a few moments. Think about what you would have done to get that child back in those moments. How desperately you would, you'd go, you'd do whatever. And sometimes, maybe some of you have seen movies where some child gets kidnapped or you see on the news, and you think, how do those parents sleep? How do you do the next thing? How do you sit down and take time to eat a meal when your child's out there somewhere and you want to find them? Some of you saw the, the headlines of Nepal and what happened there, the earthquake. I saw one of the stories. There's over 6,000 people died, but there's some stories of people that have been found in the rubble. There was a four-month-old baby that was found after 22 hours of being in the rubble. And they, in fact, the army had gone through, and the first time had passed over this area and just counted the child as dead, but then heard some crying a few hours later and went back and pulled this child out of this rubble. Can you imagine if that was your child? Like, I can't even fathom that. 22 hours, what would you do? Pulling away the debris? Would you sleep? Would you eat? Would you just be going after your child? See, it's the absence. It's the fact that you don't have the thing that you long for that gives you the drive. And Paul's saying here, I haven't obtained this. I haven't arrived. 
That's why I have such a strong drive, such a strong desire to know Christ completely and to be made complete in Christ. Now, God's doing a work. He's faithful to complete it. And he's the one who gives us the very desire to want to go forward. But there's an effort on our part, a desire, a longing, things that we do to go after him. And Paul's saying, that's why I do it. I don't have it yet. I haven't obtained all this. He says it twice in case you miss it. Verse 12, he says it, the very first thing. Not that I've obtained all this. In other words, it hasn't happened. I haven't been made perfect. I haven't arrived. And then verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Taken hold of what? He had just said in verse 12, that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What did Jesus do? Came so that we could know him. I want to take hold of what he took hold of for me. So positionally, this is reality. But practically, I want it to be reality. So I have to do something. I'm going after it. I haven't arrived yet. And neither of you. Each one of us are at different places spiritually. At Southbridge, we've had, uh, we're in a season right now. We've seen several people come to Christ. We had 40 people say that they trusted Christ at our Easter service. Last week after the service, we had a gentleman that was visiting from New York, checked on his card. He had trusted Jesus as a Savior. Had another person right on there. I want to know Christ as a prayer request. Our shepherding pastor, Jason Tovey, had followed up with him, and they met together. That guy trusted Christ too. So if you're one of those people that trusted Christ, that's awesome. It's the most significant decision you'll ever make in your life. It changes everything. But you haven't arrived. And some of you placed your faith in Jesus a long time ago. And maybe you haven't done much about it since. You haven't arrived. You're kind of lingering around the starting line. And some of you have been doing this for a while. Maybe things are going really well. Memorizing books of the Bible, leading other people to Jesus. Um, everybody else looks at you and they all want to be like you. But you haven't arrived. When I read this and Paul's saying this to these people in Acts 16, or the people from Philippi that we read about in Acts 16, I wonder if it was just pastoral counsel for him. Like he was encouraging them by saying, hey, I don't, I don't have this figured out yet either. And he's being transparent with them. Saying, I'm going after this too, just like I'm encouraging you, Lydia, the wealthy woman, who maybe was tempted to trust in her wealth. And, and Paul's saying, I struggle too. And there's the demon-possessed gal in Acts chapter 16 that we read about. And maybe her thing was guys trying to please these men, like the woman at the well in John 4. He's saying, I got struggles too, Paul's saying that. Philippian jailer, we struggle with fear and anxiety. <laughs> that would be something you could uh, come to a conclusion of when you see the way that he responds when the jail falls apart. And Paul's saying, I, I struggle too. Romans chapter 7, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do things that I don't want to do, and, and I'm the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm not done with it all yet. I haven't arrived. So I love about uh, my GPS on my phone when I go places. It tells me that I've arrived <laughs> when I get there. So it makes me feel good about me for like a couple seconds. Several times when I show up at a place and it tells me that I've arrived and I know that I haven't arrived, like a couple months ago, I broke up with Time Warner Cable, something I highly recommend for anyone in the audience today. And uh, not that I'm complaining, because I preached about that a few weeks ago. Just because the rejoicing over new relationships is so good that uh, I'd broken up with Time Warner and uh, they make you return your equipment yourself. So they don't even come get it. They don't give you a box to send it back or anything like that. They, so you've got to bring it back. Like, whatever. I'm so glad about being done with you I, uh, because then you can move on to new things too uh, that uh, I'll bring it back. And so I pop in my GPS over off Capitol Boulevard. I can go over there. All right, whatever. I don't know where this is at, but I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go there. I get to the spot and my GPS says, you've arrived. I look around, I'm like, look, I wasn't super crazy about your customer service. I'm pretty sure you weren't running your business out of your house. I'm in the middle of like a neighborhood thinking, I'm not there. As soon as you think you've arrived, you haven't arrived. Paul's saying, I haven't arrived yet. 
I haven't gotten there. In fact, if anybody says that they've arrived, I challenge you to read 1 John chapter 1, where the Apostle John, not just Paul, John tells us, that if anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. So if anyone ever portrays themselves as if they've got it all figured out, don't trust that person, because they've deceived themselves even. And sometimes we have this tendency, we get our favorite author, maybe our favorite preacher you see on TV or something, and we think to themselves, well, they must be perfect. They must have it all together. No, go ask their spouse or their kids. They're not. None of us have arrived. And that's not discouraging news. That should push us to go forward. So how do we go forward? Well, Paul tells us next. Look at the passage. Verse 13, after the second time of saying he hasn't arrived, in fact, the third, if you count him saying, I'm not perfect, he says in verse 13, Brothers, I've not considered myself yet to take hold of it, but one thing I do. And so here's the Apostle Paul, and he's going to tell us his one thing. Now, it's interesting. He actually says two things here in a minute. We'll give him a little grace. But really, he's talking about two elements of the same thing. He says, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. And so this is how I pursue Christ, he's saying. First of all, I've got to get past my past. Forget what is behind. And so if we're going to go after Jesus, you've got to get past your past. You can't let that, that, Paul knows that can be the thing that's like the number one hindrance, the obstacle that stops us from going after Jesus or things that have happened in our past. And so he says, forget your past. And for some of you, that is incredibly appealing. Especially those of you who've done something that you consider pretty bad, or maybe you habitually were doing things that you thought were pretty bad, or, or some of you have had things done to you. And I could tell you right now about the benefits of forgetting and we could talk about techniques to forget, and we could pray the past away and talk through some of those things, but that would be wrong. And it would be a disservice to you. Because as appealing as it would be in this moment, um, it wouldn't work. But I recognize that our past, for some of us, is some of our greatest pain, some of our greatest difficulty. And Paul's here saying to forget it. And so what is he talking about? Well, we know he's not saying just to erase it from our memories. And I can prove that to you really quickly. Just go back to chapter 3 and verses 4 through 7, and Paul's just written about his past. And so he's not saying, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, um, persecuted the church. Oh, by the way, forget your past. (laughs) I haven't done it, but you should. That's not what forget means in the Bible. In fact, have you ever seen before where it talks about God forgetting things, and you wonder to yourself, how can God be all-knowing and then forget stuff? And and Hebrews, and uh, Hebrews... Uh, chapter 10, verse 17, we read this verse. Their sins and lawless acts, this is God speaking, I will remember no more. So God gets a case of amnesia. That's not what it means. Forgetting in the scripture, it means that God knows the things that you've done. He knows your sinful deeds, but he's not holding them against you any longer. He's not allowing them to influence his decisions about you. And so he knows the sin that you've done, but when he looks at you, he chooses to see you as Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus. He sees that righteousness. He doesn't hold the sins against you. It doesn't affect your standing with him. And so what Paul's saying here, when he talks about forgetting the past, is saying don't let it affect you going forward with Jesus Christ. Don't let that stop you. In fact, the words he uses here, because he's using a running analogy, right? It's pressing on, his running language that he's talking about here, straining towards what is ahead, his running language again that he's using here. And here the word forget is actually an athletic term that's used of a runner in a race, who passes another runner. When you pass another runner, you don't forget that person. You don't forget, hey, the guy in the orange shirt, just uh, he doesn't exist any longer. No, you don't forget him, but you're not thinking about him because your eyes are on the prize. Your eyes are on the goal. In fact, if you look back, what ends up happening is that you causes you to lose momentum. I read a story this week of two guys that were racing, doing the one mile, and they were the only two guys on earth at the time that were able to run a four-minute mile. So incredibly gifted athletes. So they go off, they do four laps around a track, 
And on the fourth lap, the guy who was in the lead, he looked back, he ended up losing by five yards. Because he looked back. He lost his momentum. It hindered him. And what Paul's saying here is this. Don't let yourself be hindered by the past. The things that were done to you, or the things that you've done, because it'll stop you from moving forward to the prize. In fact, in the scriptures, we see God continually actually command people to remember. Oftentimes it's to remember, build these, you know, set up these stones, remember this stuff so that it catalyzes you forward. And we know that Paul knows his past. He talks about here persecuting the church, bad stuff he's done. He talks about zeal. He talks about being a Pharisee. He talks about his legalistic righteousness. Those are accomplishments, good things he's done. He's like, either way, when I look back at that stuff, it should catalyze me forward. So how does that happen? Well, we see it in the Bible. Some of you have had things done to you. A great study is the study of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph's a guy who was abused um, growing up. He's a young man. He's uh, falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. Thrown into jail. He goes through difficult circumstances that you wonder to yourself, how can God let this happen? How could this be part of God's plan? And he gets to a point in Genesis chapter 50 where he can have revenge on his brothers, the very ones who inflicted the abuse on him. And it's interesting what he says in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me. So he, he's not saying what you did was good. When he looks back at his past, and his past is actually going to be redeemed here, we're going to see. He's not saying what happened in the past was a good thing. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So he even takes the junk, the bad stuff, like we sang about in the second song that we sang today. You intended it for bad. But God can transform even that into good to accomplish what's now being done. He says, the saving of many lives. And so what he does is he looks back at the most painful things that have happened in his past. You see him weep bitterly in Genesis chapter 45. It wasn't that this didn't hurt, but he sees it's been redeemed. And so it actually catalyzes him forward in his relationship with God. You see, one of my favorite stories is in Luke chapter 7. Talk about someone who's done, had something done to them, but then you talk about somebody who's done some stuff. In Luke chapter 7, what's happening is Jesus is having a meal with a guy named Simon. He's a religious leader, a Pharisee, and he's a very self-righteous guy. You can tell by the, the situation that takes place in Luke chapter 7. You can read it on your own. But what ends up happening is that uh, this woman comes into the meeting, and she's a woman with a sinful reputation. So she's done some stuff, and everybody knows about it. And she starts washing Jesus' feet. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach Simon a lesson. And so Jesus says, Simon, uh, let's say there's two people that have a debt. One owns 500 denarii. That's a day's wages, so lots of money. The other one owns 50 denarii, but neither one's able to pay. And the person who they owe money to forgives the debts of both. Which one loves more? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one who's been forgiven more. He says, that's right, Simon. And he grabs the face of the woman and says, she hasn't stopped washing my feet. They're tears. And you didn't wash my feet when I got here, Simon. You don't think you need to be forgiven. You don't think you need me the way that she thinks she needs me. And he says, those who've been forgiven much, they love much. He's saying, you look at the enormity of your sin and let it catalyze you to an enormity of love. And you don't forget, you did the, the things happened, but see them the way that Christ sees them. Redeem those situations from your past. Paul himself does that very thing. He says here, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his... I would even suffer to know him. And what do we know about Paul? He tells Timothy, when he's a lot closer to death than he is here in Philippians. He tells Timothy, his young protege, in uh, the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 1. 
verses 15 and 16, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. And we might roll our eyes and think, yeah, right. And he killed Christians. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy because I was the worst. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe on him and receive his eternal life. So great sinner receives great grace and should then have great love. But what's really interesting too is that you look at this context of the Philippians 3 passage and a bunch of the stuff that Paul's talking about when he talks about his past are actually good things. Some of you have a really good background. Maybe you didn't do bad stuff. Maybe you've even thought to yourself before, maybe if I did some of the bad stuff, then I'd love Jesus even more because then I'd realize how much forgiven I am. But then I've just been, I've been good. I've memorized verses. I've always been in church and all these things you've got going for yourself. And, and Paul's actually saying, don't let that hinder you either. I was an eighth dayer. That's for legalistic righteousness. I was a Pharisee. That's an elite group. He says, I accomplished it all. Best schooling, best accomplishments. I was exceeding all my peers. Don't let that hinder you. Don't let that hold you back. Don't be like the guy at the high school reunion has all of his memories from the past. And the past is the best part of his whole life. Because God's got something for you today. You haven't arrived. So you keep going towards the goal. You've got to get past your past. And press on to the future. And that's the last thing Paul says. We've got to press on to the future. We've got to press on towards what is ahead. You must press on to the prize. Which is Christ. Brothers, verse 13, do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting the past, getting past the past, and straining towards what is ahead. That word for straining at the end of verse 13 there is of an athlete, and every muscle, every fiber is being pressed towards the finish line. It's everything they have to go towards the goal. So, what's your goal? Because we can talk like it's Christ, but if we're honest, and it doesn't do you any good to be dishonest. Some of you left last week and you knew your one thing wasn't Jesus. And some of you weren't here last week, but you think about it. And, and, and you had to ask yourself, examine your life. Unexamined life, not worth living. Paul was examining his life when he considered these things. Is it Jesus? I read a pretty convicting quote this week. I'm going to share it with you. From a guy named Michael Reeves. He was doing an interview on Desiring God. He said this, Compare Christ to whatever else it is that you treasure. So what is it that you really want? Is it love? He uses an example. Is it that you want to be loved? And that can come in various ways. He talks about different ways. Sexual addiction, a desire for fame. Those are really varieties of wanting to be loved. And so you can say lots of different things, but what is at the core of that is what he's getting to. Is it acceptance? He uses another example. Is it money? Is it power? Is it comfort? Find your thing. Now compare that thing that you dream of and love with Christ. Which is better? Does pornography offer you the satisfaction, acceptance, and love that Jesus does? Does money offer you anything in comparison to the riches of Christ? See, some of us don't realize this, that we've been given every blessing from God. It's our inheritance, our spiritual inheritance. We're going to get it someday. And so how ridiculous and foolish does it look for us to grasp after everything here, knowing that one day he's going to give us everything? Does it compare? It doesn't compare. This is the answer. Does passing temporal power offer you anything in comparison to what Christ is offering? The power of the resurrection? Victory over sin? Would you see how much better Christ is than those other things you go running after? You will choose Christ rather than those things. And you will walk away from them with freedom. With freedom. 
And so for those of you that Jesus isn't your one thing, what's that one thing? For some of you, you're single, you want to be married. That's your thing. Is your spouse going to deliver to you what Jesus can deliver? Oh, no, don't worry. I want Jesus and my spouse. Well, the Bible says you can't have two masters. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. So which is it? Well, that's talking about money, but yeah, they all apply. What about, maybe you struggle with infertility, and so it's the child. If you have that child, is that child going to deliver to you what Jesus Christ can deliver? Or that position, or that amount of money, or that situation in life, or that acceptance from whatever, whoever, dad, whatever the person is you're going after. Will it deliver to you what Jesus Christ can deliver? Because when you read Paul here, and he's talking about this one thing, it's almost like, wait, you, you experienced Jesus in a different... Do you want to know Christ? It's like you know something that the rest of us haven't experienced. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want fellowship, shared experience in your sufferings, that I might know him. And you see this throughout the Bible. You see people that are going after Jesus. And you wonder, why don't I go after Jesus like that? Like one of my favorite stories, Mark chapter 2, Luke chapter 5, these guys are bringing their friend on a mat who can't walk, and they're trying to get to Jesus, and Jesus is in the house. There's a whole bunch of people there, and they could have easily just been like, oh, we'll try tomorrow. But instead, they climb up on the roof of the house. You know this story? They pull the tiles back to get to Jesus, and then Jesus gives them grace, not just the guy. I want to get to Christ. I'm straining towards the goal. I'm pressing on towards him. What does they tell the woman at the well when she comes? She's coming there to get a drink of water. Pleasurable experience to quench that thirst. He says, I've got water. You'll never thirst again. It's like there's something about Jesus most of us are missing. We don't get it. And it's like we'll add him to our things. We kind of have a Christian Buddhism. We'll just add him in. We'll throw him in with a bunch of the other gods that we got. And hopefully he makes our life better. But you don't understand who you're talking about. You don't understand the beauty of Christ. The psalmist would say, his love is better than my life. In a dry and weary land where all you should want is water, he says, I want you. As the deer pants for water, my soul longs for you, David says. David's guy, he's had a lot of experiences, but he wants Christ. He wants him. What about you? Is Christ enough? If you didn't get heaven, if you trusted Jesus, would you still want Jesus? Is Jesus enough? He's the goal in this passage. He's the prize. It's verses 8 through 11. The surpassing greatness, surpassing all other things of knowing Christ Jesus. And so I press on. I strain with everything I have. I want to go after him the way that he came after me. That he left heaven. He put on flesh. He comes here. He becomes human. And so God would know what it is to be tired and tempted to know me. He knows what it is to have agony to pray in the garden. Let this cup, if there's any other way. To know what it is to suffer on the cross. To know what it is to be broken, forsaken on the cross. And so I shift my trust to him. Why? Just so that I can get heaven? Or so I can get him? And then what? What do you do after that point? So you cross the starting line. Now what do you do? How do you go after him? that he came after you. I'll, even to the point of sharing in your suffering, Christ, if that's what it takes for me to know you, I want that. That's what Paul's saying. It's like he knows something the rest of us don't know. And he says, and I go after it with everything I have, straining with every muscle, like a runner going towards the finish line. Because if I get him, no one can take that from me. I get him. But it requires effort. 
I'm not saying you do anything to be saved, to be clear about that today. Your effort, you have to do something. Because I get you pumped up and say, yeah, Jesus is my one thing. I'm going to do that one thing. That doesn't do you any good. Let's get practical today and talk about, so what do you do? How do you get him? Well, Paul tells Timothy, you've got to do something about it. It just, doesn't just happen. No one becomes godly by accident. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, after telling him in chapter 1 he's the chief of sinners, he says in chapter 4, train yourselves to be godly. So there's training involved. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You go after Christ, you get him here, and you get him forever, and no one can take that from you, but it requires work. It requires discipline. Think about the spiritual disciplines. I recommended a book in your small group study for those of you who are in a small group and receive that email. If you don't receive that email, you can check it on your connection card today that you'd like to get that email. The book is by Don Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. In it, he lists about 10 of them. We're not going to go through all 10 of them today. Don't worry. Some of you are going, whoa, 10. Now, usually they have to do with, by the way, being in the Word on a daily basis because that's how God speaks to us. He talks about prayer because that's how we speak to Him. He talks about things like fasting because it shows us our longing for Him because whenever we're hungry, then we go after Him. We pray to Him. It talks about various things that we do, silence, solitude, service, evangelism, stewardship. It goes through disciplines of the godly life, but there's something you do. I'm not saying you do that to become a Christian. Jesus already did the work for that. But you do something as you go after him because you love him. Not to get him to love you because you love him. You do something. And it's work. And here Paul says it's the the kind of work that you go after everything with him. And if you don't think you should do it, he gives verses 15 and 16. He says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And I love Paul's uh, comfortability in his own stance here. He says, and if on some point you think differently, uh, that too God will make clear to you. If you disagree with me, God will figure that out for you. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not perfect, but I know that this is true. That Jesus should be your one thing. And there's one thing you do to go after him. You forget your past and you press on towards the future. And if you don't agree, God will work that out. He's faithful to complete the work in you. And verse 16, only let us live up to what we've already attained. At least let us live in obedience and activity according to what we already know to be true. So whatever you've learned at this point, and for some of you, you just trusted Jesus this week. You know the gospel. You know that Jesus did everything for you so that you could have a relationship with him. Bask in the glory of that and see how that changes your day. Like when we were singing and the songs that we were singing. Let that ruminate. Let that push you forward towards the finish line of knowing him. You won't linger at the starting line. And when you get him, no one can take that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a church family and and people who genuinely want to know you. And God, we ask that you just make yourself known. Make yourself known through the scriptures. Make yourself known through our experiences. Make yourself known in our relationships. Make yourself known in every way in this church. And God, I pray for those that are believers. I've been walking with you for some period of time. Fan the flame in their heart that they want you more. Renew their commitment to discipline of being in your word. And the discipline of talking to you on a regular basis. God, carve out in their hearts space for silence, for service. God, help them to know you. And God, I pray if there's anybody who's not in the race, there are some here that might hear these words and think, all right, I'm going to start reading my Bible. But you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That doesn't do you any good. Don't do that. You need to get in the race. You need to cross the starting line and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And do that by admitting that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus as your Savior. And you can do that right now. You can pray in your seat right now.
And for those of you who are believers, Father, I just pray that you would continue them in the perseverance of this race, that they would show the evidence of their salvation by the way that they live, that they wouldn't be liars and pretend there's no sin, they do a sin. And God, I pray you'd cleanse me of any sin, even if I've done some here that I don't even realize. And God, I, I pray, I pray for those that we know that don't know your son Jesus. I pray that many of us have at least one person we're praying for that doesn't know Jesus. I pray that you'd bring them to Christ and you'd use us as we press on towards the goal of knowing you. They'd say how much we long for you and they'd want you to. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, church family, um, if you're interested in that book that I mentioned, the Don Whitney book, um, you can go ahead and email our office and we'll send you a link to that. You can purchase that. I hope you have a great week this week, uh, whether it's hanging out with your small group, with your family, doing the things that you have to do, but don't miss your one thing. I love you. I'll see you.